0: Strokeside Designs is a New York based fine jewelry company focused on water sports. This is the best jewelry I have found through many years of searching. I love my dragon boat paddle heart earrings and my pendant. The jewelers at Strokeside Designs have worked for famous jewelry houses such as Tiffany and Company and Cartier. All of the pieces are hand finished from fine materials. Express your passion for kayaking, canoeing, and dragon boating. Visit paddlejewelry.com and get free shipping with the code PINK. That is paddlejewelry.com and enter the code pink. Are you a dragon boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Watersports makes high performance, lightweight carbon fiber dragon boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the dragon boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape and more. Visit their website at HornetWaterSports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's HornetWaterSports.com and enter the code PINK. Thanks for downloading. Our guest on this episode is RP Hamilton. Arpy found a pea-sized lump in her breast in September of 2016. While she was having symptoms, she ignored those symptoms for approximately three months before going to see her gynecologist. She ended up being diagnosed at the age of 38 with stage 3 triple negative invasive ductal carcinoma. Arby talks about her course of treatment and the struggles that she has faced. She also talks about the things that she continues to deal with even three years later. I want to give a big shout out to a mutual friend, Kathleen Wilson, for connecting me with Arby. Take a listen in as Arby shares her story. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12 year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Arby. Arby is a three-year breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed with triple negative stage three invasive ductal carcinoma in December of 2016. She comes from Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. So thank you so much for being um, on the podcast with us today.
1: Thank you for
0: having me. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your journey with breast cancer. Um, Tell me about finding um, either a lump or whatever it was that kind of took place that, you know, kind of led you down this path.
1: Mm -hmm. So I, um, I'd always kind of had lumpy breasts, so to speak, very dense breasts. And um, I had found lumps, and I would go to the doctor periodically, and they would tell me it was nothing. I had fibroadenomas, um, just benign little cysts, and they would go and come on their own. But this was different. Um, I had woken up early uh, the morning of a, a girlfriend's wedding. And we were all together. I was with all my friends, and I had found the lump, and it actually was very sensitive to the touch. It was about um, at eleven o'clock on my right breast, and um, it was kind of a passing thought, no big deal. And so, when you say um,
0: sensitive, did it it hurt? Like when you touched it?
1: It did. It did. The more I touched it, not necessarily just the first time, but the more I kind of played with it, it was tender. Okay. Tender to the touch and very small, maybe just a pea size.
0: Okay. Because a lot of times what we hear is it's not painful. Right. Right. So, you know, to, so I wonder if it's, um, you know, because I did the same thing where I just kept touching it, like it was going <laughs> to go away or something. <laughs>
1: right. Right. You were just checking to see if it was there.
0: Yeah, okay. exactly. So, okay. All right. Yeah, so, um, so not necessarily a, an immediate thought because you had already been yeah
1: nothing alarming
0: okay okay so um like what did you do next um after that
1: absolutely nothing (laughs) (laughs) literally nothing for months oh my gosh yeah that was in September of 16 and um I think you know now that I look back there were symptoms but I ignored them, which is really weird because I had always told myself, pay attention. If you ever notice these symptoms, something's wrong. But I missed every single one of them. And what were those symptoms? What were things that I, kind of uh, popped up? Well, I had a lump and it was growing. I had some pain in my underarm area, kind of, and my bra was bothering me. I, had to, I was stuffing tissue in the side of my bra because it almost felt as though the wire was bothering me I I couldn't really tell what it was I thought it was the bra right I come to find out it was a swollen lymph node
0: okay well yeah I mean if you're if you're wearing underwire that kind of would be about the position right. you know kind of that mm-hmm. 11 o'clock position where that end would be for a wire I mean right
1: at least as far as re- I remember
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um, okay so that would make sense
1: that you would think that's sleeping constantly I I was um, I was a full time student, but I was giving up study time to sleep. Okay. And now that I look back, it was it was just excessive.
0: Right. So, at what point did you kind of realize this is something that I need to go and see somebody about?
1: I had um, we were on vacation, and I had woken up in the morning. We were on a cruise ship, and I was on my stomach, and it felt like I was laying on something. And I rolled over, and when I touched it, it was so big, I could take my um, middle finger and my thumb, stretched out wide, and I could wrap it around it from the center of my breast, um, like the cleavage area, all the way to the armpit. Oh, wow. It stretched across the entire top quadrant of my breast.
0: And so, in September, it was the size of a pea. Right. And then here you are some. later now. Yeah, and I mean, really, that's
1: not a long time. Right. But it had grown that fast. hmm Wow. Yeah, and after all was said and done, it was about eight centimeters, and um, they said it had tentacles, which was very, very odd. So was that, when I hear
0: kind of tentacles, I hear that that's usually associated with like lobular versus ductile so was right. there a combination of both or was you know they divasive? never
1: said that there was but initially early on the thought was that it was lobular okay
0: yeah because I've I've only heard of right. kind of that tentacle conversation when it's related to the lobular mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah it was not it was invasive hmm. that's interesting right oh. okay so and, and quite large
0: yeah. So you went in. So did you go to your um like your PCP or did you go to your gynecologist
1: or who I did you? I did. I did go to my gyno because um, at CTCA, which which is where I work, and uh, that's I wanted to be seen cancer, there. And that's Cancer Treatment
0: Centers of America. Just Correct. for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what CTCA is, mm-hmm. although I feel like it should be a household name.
1: <laughs> it really <laughs> should be. They saved my life. Uh, cancer Treatment Centers of America. You um. It's an oncology hospital, so in order to be seen there, I needed an order, so I went and saw my uh, gynecologist, and actually, because I'm quite young, I, I had to beg for her to write me a referral to have a mammogram. She wanted to fight me about it and say, you're really young. I have no family history. She really, really felt that it was just a blocked lobular gland. Right,
0: and how old were you? Because of the
1: location. I was 38.
0: 38. Okay. Yeah. I, I find that, um, many people that I talk to, um, who are under the age of 40 and sometimes even 50 that there is resistance to send, you know, somebody off for a mammogram and then it's, you know, usually it's more to appease.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: and then surprise. (laughs) Right. It's something yeah, else. Yeah, I
1: don't believe, she didn't, um, and I'll tell you more about that later, but she absolutely was not concerned in any way, shape, or form. Okay. So, but she did. I mean, she
0: said. She did. Okay, mm-hmm. we'll send you. And then, so you immediately started with CTCA in terms of even the diagnostic screenings.
1: I did. I did. I was able to call them that day. It was a Thursday, and they had me scheduled for the next day. Wow. So I went in on Friday. Uh, It was, um, I want to say it was around like December 8th. I went in on Friday and they did the mammogram and they immediately sent me for an ultrasound. And I had been through this before. And usually the tech will go out, out, talk to the radiologist and come back and I'm free to go. And This time the radiologist came in the room with her.
0: That's usually the scariest thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of scary things that happen in all of this, but when you when you have a history of um, you know, those kinds of experiences. So for me, I, I, I had a history of um cysts on my ovaries. So I kinda knew, right? Like I never saw the radiologist, but when this kinda happened, the radiologist came in, you know, it's kinda like, Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Something else is going on
0: here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay.
1: And, um, he pretty much immediately said it looks really suspicious and I'd like to do a biopsy. I, my initial reaction, I started to laugh, (laughs) (laughs) which was really bizarre because I'm not a laugher. I'm usually a crier and I started to laugh and he was just staring at me, like he didn't know what to do. I I don't know if he thought maybe I didn't take him seriously. Right. You're like, buddy, I don't know what to do either. Mm
0: -hmm, (laughs) So all all I can do right now is laugh.
1: (laughs) Just laugh. Yeah he, I basically said, I'm not in any position right now. I need a few minutes. And so I got dressed and I left. Oh, wow. Without allowing him to biopsy. I had never, I think at this point in my life, I had so much as had a cavity filled. That is it. I've never had stitches. I'd never broken anything. I was terrified of needles. Sure. I wanted no part of this.
0: Well, and were you there by yourself or did you have somebody with you?
1: Completely alone.
0: Yeah. Um, I would think that biopsies are one of those things where you probably should have somebody with you. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point did you go back for the biopsy? I mean, you obviously had to kind of process this and then decide, yeah. like, I'm, I'm going to go through with this and kind of see what happens. So how long after did you um, finally go back?
1: So that was a Friday. And I, I on Monday, um, he actually called me because again, we work together and he just said, I know you're not going to come back over here. And he said, please just give me 30 minutes of your time. I really think um, you need to do this. And so I went across the street. I worked in a different building at the time. So I went across the street and, you know, within 30 minutes in and out, it was fine. But um, my, my indication at that moment that I knew I had cancer was the lymph node. Not necessarily the breast biopsy, but after that was done, he said, you know what? I'm going to do another one. There's a swollen lymph node I'd like to get down in there and see. Why else would I have a swollen lymph node? And why else would they bi- biopsy it? Right. And that pretty much, um, that was a Monday. And by Wednesday, um, he had called me into his office and just basically said it was positive. Oh, wow. So, it was
0: very I mean, I kind Yeah. And I, I kind of like just thinking about these are people that you work with, right? Like there's no, um, there's no privacy in that, right? Where like, if I didn't want my coworkers to know, I just wouldn't have to tell them, right? Like, but when you work for a facility where you're also being treated and then all of a sudden the people that are around you who are your coworkers kind of know what's going on. um, I mean, did you have any feelings around that or was it just kind of like, whatever, (laughs)
1: You know, not, not really, because I'm not typically a private person anyways. I'm, I'm an open book. Okay. Um, I believe in, um, experiences and I believe in learning from others. And I, to be honest with you, I think my transparency with my coworkers changed their life as well, because it became a, this is not necessarily something we see every day and it's not just our patients, but it can happen to us too. Yeah. Yeah. And people may think that they're invincible, but just like that, it can happen to you. Absolutely. And so I think it was life changing for them as well. Yeah. I mean,
0: that's a, and it's a hard lesson, right? You never want to see anybody around you going through it and then to see somebody, you know, that close, um, mm-hmm. you know, and especially when you work in oncology, I feel like, you know, sometimes, um, you know, there's a there's a lack of understanding, right? Like sometimes information is given that's not accurate because you don't have that experience, right? Um, you know, but being able to kind of take that experience, whether it's you or your coworkers, and being able to kind of have a little bit more empathy mm-hmm. um, with other patients, I think would be really valuable.
1: It is, and and I'm not better at my job than somebody who hasn't had cancer. It's just a different different. connection Mm -hmm. with a patient. And sometimes I share, I don't share with every patient, but when I feel led to share, I do because it does create a connection and it creates trust. Absolutely. And sometimes people need that.
0: Sometimes patients need that. They do. They
1: just need somebody that
0: understands. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with Mm -hmm. that. Um, So then you know, you, you get the diagnosis and then what kind of happens
1: after that? I mean, what was your course of treatment? So I um, didn't really have much information at that moment. My husband was actually out of the country, which was very difficult for him. He couldn't get a flight back. Um, He took it very hard. He was, you know, man of the house and he, this entire time he was, Oh, you're fine. You're fine. It's nothing. And then, you know, it's something. And for him to not be able to be there and kind of peel me up off the floor was really difficult for him. I'm sure. And so I kind of held everything. He was in Germany at the time working. So I held everything off about um, 10 days until he got home. And then I was able to um, see the oncologist and... um, basically it was, you know, this is aggressive. We don't really know what we're working with because it's triple negative and there isn't a lot of research on triple negative. Um, I mean, I literally defied all the odds. They couldn't believe I was sitting in front of them because I was so young. Um, no family history, all these things that were pointing in a different direction or pointing at this 38 year old, you know, Caucasian woman just didn't make sense. And so, um, Basically, it was aggressive chemo. I did, well, initially I did four rounds of taxotere, adriamycin, and cytoxin all together. Okay. Which was a very tough regimen. And um, I did four rounds of that. And then initially I thought I would have a lumpectomy, but we were not able to preserve the breast. So I had a unilateral mastectomy. So, I mean, you had talked about it being eight centimeters. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's
0: pretty big, right? When you did the chemo, did that help to shrink it at
1: all, or it did? Okay, it did, but still and not we,
0: quite to the degree that it could be saved.
1: No, because of the spread. To well, a right because of the size. Um, even though there was so much scar tissue, they thought. I think maybe they were just telling me they could preserve the breast, and they knew the whole time because I read at one point that. Um, patient is very concerned about aesthetics. And I thought, (laughs) so they knew that, I mean, I was young. I was very concerned. And, you know, I've heard other women say, oh, it was a chance for me to, you know, have nice breasts. I was 38. I had fabulous breasts. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't ask for this, you know. Right. Yeah. And everybody's in a different position,
0: but yeah. yeah. Um, I was hard to hard to read that kind of stuff.
1: (laughs) Right. And so I think they, they were like, oh, she's vain. We just want to make sure you know, she knows she's going to be okay, but in the end, it just wasn't possible, and I wasn't okay with that decision all the way up until they wheeled me into the OR. I was a basket case. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's you know, sometimes people elect to do things, right, and and right. they're okay with that, but when something is forced upon you mm-hmm. and you are not emotionally um, or physically, mentally, whatever whatever you describe it as, uh, prepared, ready for you that know. yeah it it doesn't matter you know it, it's exactly what you said you know the point where you're being wheeled into the OR and you're still not okay with it. Beg-
1: yeah begging them please yeah. don't do this to me and you know I've um, had women in my support group Melissa who were diagnosed and within 10 days they were having a double mastectomy just get them off. Right. And there I want other women to know by hearing this that not everybody is the same and you know, I struggle with that. I see women with so much acceptance, and even now, as far out as I am, this—I I am not in a place I think where I, maybe other people are. Um, I'm struggling. I have PTSD. Sure. I—I um, I am not in a good place, even three years later. Right. And I'm working on that, but it is—I see women that are just moving on with life, and I—I I think there are other women out there that are like me that are still looking in the rearview mirror, waiting for the other to drop. And I, I agree with that.
0: Um, you know, and I, I kind of want to echo exactly what you say where, you know, we're all in a different place and, you know, for some people, you know, they are very quick to move on. I mean, one mm-hmm. of, one of my first episodes, you know, she was very much like, you know, boom, 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 and then done. Right. And then she's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of moving on and, and doing her thing. And um, not that it's back to normal, but <laughs> you know not everybody's there and not everybody's okay with that and um you know we all have to allow ourselves to be in the space that we're in and to just let it be and you know find find supports that can help us with you know being in that space because i don't think that we should discourage people from you know experiencing those feelings or you know not being in a position of being okay um, right you know everybody around us wants us to be okay mm-hmm. <laughs> you know oh, they yeah. want us <laughs> they want us to move on but that's not always the reality um so thank you for sharing that i think that's important for you know our listeners to hear whether they're breast cancer mm-hmm. survivors or even you know supporters um caregivers whomever i think that's right. important so um so did you do reconstruction um after the the unilateral mastectomy or i did okay and did you I, uh, use an implant or did you go kind of a hybrid of the two um, or your own tissue?
1: So I, um, I went to an implant and um, I was, I wasn't heavy. I, I've never been heavy, but I was a little larger. I had larger breasts. I was a 38 double D and I was about a 160 pounds at diagnosis. And so at the time of surgery, they were able to go direct to implant and, um, but the problem was again, I was 160 pounds at that time and slowly through treatment, I lost weight. Um, and so now almost three years later, my implant is failing and, um, it is encapsulated and it has to come out. I have chronic pain because of it. Um, and it just has to come out, but Again, fear is driving my decision, so sure. here I sit, terrified to go through with another surgery. And is it is it
0: encapsulated because you had radiation to follow or because yes. you lost the weight? Okay.
1: Both, actually. Both. So um, it's, it's this giant implant, and I'm about, so I was about 155 pounds. I'm about 111 now. Oh, wow. That's a so significant I, yeah. drop. Yeah, so I have this large implant, and part of it, you know, I'm going to be honest and tell you that part of that is my PTSD and my anxiety and the depression that came with the diagnosis. Um, it caused a little bit of an eating disorder. Yeah. I wouldn't say, um, I would just say that there's some fear there with food, you know. Right. well, Which is all part of it yes. just it's a cycle. you know, people aren't aware. I don't know if other survivors have dealt with that. Um, yeah, I don't know.
0: yeah. I mean, i I feel like, yes, um you know, one of the one of the first things that I did immediately after but my bilateral mastectomy was I took um I took the time to rest for about five mm-hmm. days, and then I immediately went through my entire kitchen and threw out everything and anything that I thought should not go into my body. Could cause cancer. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So, you know, it didn't quite go to maybe the degree that you've experienced, Um, Mm -hmm. but I think there is, you know, legit fear of, you know, the things that we're putting into our bodies. And, you know, um, I mean, I feel like this is a conversation that could go on for
1: hours. Um,
0: You know, but, but our food is you know, what our food is exposed to. And then mm-hmm. we're then consuming that ourselves, you know, the pesticides, I mean, right. That alone is enough to drive people crazy. Um, mm-hmm. with thinking about putting that, that stuff into your body. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, you know, I, I'm sure that there are other people out there that have, have the same experience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, I have to thank you for sharing that information because, you know, it may not be something that people are willing to come forward and say. Right. um,
1: Right. And that's why I speak it because for the longest time, Melissa, I didn't think it was an issue. And, you know, people don't walk a day in my shoes, so they don't understand what goes on in my head. If I eat something that has sugar in it, I may obsess over that. And that's part of, again, you know, the anxiety just from the diagnosis. And I've, I even say sometimes, and I don't mean to negate what treatment is like because treatment was really difficult for me, mm-hmm. but mentally it was a little easier because I was actively doing something. And as a triple negative patient, tamoxifen or any kind of, you know, um, um, I don't know what they're called, aromatase inhibitors or anything right. like that. That's not an option. Those for options, me. right. So I'm not doing anything. The only thing I can do is watch what I put in my body, but I obsess over it (laughs) (laughs) to the point of it's just unhealthy. So I want other women to know that if they're struggling, just tell someone, just say it because if you say it, you're held accountable. I have people all around me that hold me accountable. Right.
0: Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, kind of exactly what it is, is, you know, say it out loud. And get you're the support. Alone. Yeah, mm-hmm. and know that you're not alone. I mean, you know, I when you talk about support groups, are these support groups that you're attending or support groups that
1: you're running? Um, no, just support groups that I found online with other okay. women. Um, young Survivors Coalition is a good one um, okay. for women under 50, I believe. Lots of young mothers on there. Um, it's just such a large group of diverse women, and you kind of find your group. Right. Within the group. And they have activities and they have conferences and conventions. And it's just a really great group, like, to network with local right. women in your area.
0: Okay. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure, you know, because you had talked about, you had referenced support groups and, mm-hmm. you know, some of these women that just kind of move on. And, um, you? you know, I always think it's important, too, that we never compare our stories to somebody else.
1: Absolutely. You
0: know, it's, it's, it's not fair to us um, to to do that to ourselves. Um, so, so you did the radiation, I mean, you did the chemo, you had the, the, um, unilateral mastectomy, did the radiation. And then from there, you know, again, you talked about being triple negative. So the, Mm -hmm. the treatments really kind of stopped. I mean, literally. Right. I mean, there's, (laughs) there's nothing else after that where for many of us, who are, you know, either triple positive or, you know, estrogen, um, progesterone or HER2, then there's something else. But for you, it just, once you got through radiation, it just stopped.
1: I mean, on that day, Melissa, it was over. And, um, that's kind of where I consider my anniversary. So, um, August 15th, 2017th is the day I finished treatment. Okay. And I kind of go by that date, um, just because That's when it finished. But, you know, I did four rounds of chemo, had surgery, and then had to do more chemo because of the lymph node involvement. Okay. So, I had five lymph nodes removed, um, two of which were positive. And because of that, they had me go back and do what they call preventative. Now, I kind of hang on to that and I'm like, well, I didn't have a complete pathological response because I had to have more chemo because they still found some cells after surgery. And that's, I think, what I hang on to because based on that, my reoccurrence rate could increase. Sure. I mean, I just take this information and I run with it. And I really, I'm trying to educate myself and not be so irrational about it. But some of these statistics. It's hard and it's scary. It's very scary. But we also have to know that they are just that. They are statistics based on a group of people that were, you know, tested. It's not necessarily fact it's right. not black or white right absolutely
0: and I think that's that's part of it too right like you know I I lived in that space um for a very long time where you are in terms of you know just waiting for that other shoe to drop and um you know it, it's it took some time um but I finally realized that you know I I can't hang on to this because it was preventing me from you know, living my best life, um, or living my life to the fullest. Like it was just Mm -hmm. constant, you know, the first thing I would think about in the morning was cancer. And the last thing I would think about at night was cancer. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I got to a point where, you know, through support groups, and I, um, at that time, Uh, The online presence wasn't quite there, so I was literally attending support groups in person. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, but that was really kind of the thing that got me through. So, um, you know, hopefully, you know, that will be something that you will
1: also have that experience. But yeah, Uh um, and it's good for vets too to stay around. I say vets like, like, you know, (laughs) it it, it is a good thing. I mean, we are survivors. It's something to be proud of. But. Just because we're survivors doesn't mean that there isn't a place for us in those groups. There are people that are going through treatment right now that need the aid of us survivors.
0: Absolutely. They need the hope. They need the inspiration. Mm-hmm. They need to, yes. they need to hear our stories. Um, and that's really why I, I love this podcast because we bring on, I mean, the, the longest survivor that I've had so far is, you know, she was 22, 23 years out.
1: Oh, that's amazing, um, And
0: that is, it is amazing. It gives me hope. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the, um, I mean, I had a survivor on that was, I mean, she was so fresh into her diagnosis, Um, you know, so I I hope that we can capture all of that, you know, that range so that our listeners somehow are impacted in some way uh, positively, you know, and can find some inspiration and hope um, through Mm -hmm. all of this. So, um, but I agree. You know, we, we've talked about so many things <laughs> today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's been, um, you know, a great conversation. And, you know, unfortunately, we do have to wrap up here, although I feel yeah. like I could talk to you for forever. <laughs> um, but, you know, is there anything that you would offer? Um, so I, I went to um, Cancer Treatment Centers of America for a second opinion. Um, okay. You know, I know that you had your full treatment there. Is there anything that you could offer in terms of, um, you know, somebody that might be coming into this to just help them understand
1: a little bit about CTCA? Yeah, um, so I I believe so much in our mission. I, I believe that they saved my life and CTCA is different than uh, cancer treatment centers of America, I'm sorry, is different than other um, oncology specialists or other hospitals in that we treat the entire person, not just the cancer. We have um, supportive services. Everything is under one roof. When patients come, they're going to see their oncologist, the surgeon, the radiation oncologist. There's rehab, there's pain management, infusion, acupuncture services, nutrition, all under one roof. And, um, packed into, usually when a patient comes in for an evaluation, it's packed into three days and everything is. (laughs) is there to, everything is there to help support them through this journey and, um, also for their caregivers as well. We also support the family. Right. Yeah. And I
0: think that was, um, I mean, I was, I was totally blown away, um, by my experience at CTCA, um, yeah, and thank you for that. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And uh, just the care that they took. Um, I mean, it was a lot. The three day evaluation was a lot. It's um, overwhelming. It, it is can be
1: very overwhelming,
0: very overwhelming. Um, but just the care that they took for me and, um, you know, my husband, he wasn't my mm-hmm. husband at that time, but um, <laughs> just the the care that they provided for both of us um, was, you know, I don't I don't really even have the words to articulate, um, that experience. So I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, of course, of course. And um, thank you. you. know, I I hope to actually have a somebody on to talk a little bit more specifically about CTCa. Um, but yes, let's discuss that further. Yeah, for sure. So, but I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story and being so open and so candid about your experience and you know the the continued struggles that you're having. You know, even three years out, um, because I feel like you know somebody that's listening is going to say, Oh my gosh, that's me. And, um, you know, hopefully it, it provides them with, um, you know, just some hope and some inspiration that they're not alone and it's okay to still be struggling, you know, that it's, it's not totally abnormal, um, to still be having those feelings. So thank you so much for being a
1: part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com.
1: Thinking about advertising on this podcast, our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at BehindThePinkRibbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.